All right, hello everyone. And uh, actually, surprised to see how many people after the party. I can see some people are still alive, which is good. Right, so to kick off this, this if you are in the right room, just to make sure, this is not about containers or Kubernetes or anything. This is serverless, architecture patterns. And we're gonna be covering uh, different from last year, where we covered tons of different patterns, which you can find on YouTube. This, this time, we decided to cover the one that works for the vast majority of customers. So about 80% of customers doing this on serverless are doing something like this. And at the end, I'm also gonna show you some of the examples uh, that we announced uh, recently, if, especially if you haven't seen the, um, a more, a larger application being open sourced in multiple languages as well. Uh, like, uh, my, my name is Eitor Lessa. I'm a principal serverless lead at the Well Architected. My job is to help define best practices and aggregate those practices. And lessons learned, we learn from the engineering and also from customers and partners. We're gonna do a quick recap on the best practices. And this year, to, to make sure you are still alive and make sure you're still paying attention, instead of calling things like webhooks or REST APIs, we're gonna change the names. Instead of webhook, we're just gonna say, call me maybe, All right? So you're gonna see some of those funky names. It's also important to call out what we're not gonna be covering. This is a 300 level session, so I have some expectation for your knowledge as well. It's not a 400 level that we go too deep, but it's reasonable enough that most people should be able to understand. But I expect that you know what serverless already means, and I expect you to know what Lambda is, some of the services we're gonna be covering. Uh, at the end as well, there are some patterns that are very specific that it will take about an hour to cover. So especially when you run serverless at a very large scale, we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of transactions per second, the patterns will be different. So we have one session specifically for that purpose, including all the gotchas and caveats you should be aware of when designing for large scale. Just to make sure we set the scene here at this time, when we talk about serverless or what we actually mean by serverless, uh, depending on who you talk to, they may have different understanding of what serverless means. The best way I've found to explain what serverless is in a more succinct way is think of serverless as a spectrum. It is not necessarily a, a destination that you have to go. It's more of a, sometimes it could be on the very far left-hand side where you see the compute, very traditional virtual machines, VMs, and on the far right-hand side, you see the complete opposite. Everything being fully managed, and you don't have to deal with servers, everything's patched. You don't have to think about scaling, all that handles for you. Most of the time when working with customers for the past four and a half years on serverless and about six, seven years on AWS, you will see a mix of those technologies being used at any point in time. It's not all the time that you're gonna see a customer or a partner doing serverless 100%, but you're gonna be seeing a mix of those things. So for this presentation, I'm gonna be taking that into account, and I'm gonna be showing to you some of the customers I worked with more recently that adopted different technologies, and you can see how they evolve as well, to give you a more realistic approach beyond the best practices. Right, some of the key practices that I expect you to know, but I just wanna make sure that I can recap on this. We announced this a month, a month and a half ago. If you are doing serverless for the first time and you've never done CI/CD, this is where you start. In the Lambda console, there's gonna be something called create an application, and that will create a basic CI/CD for you with the common practices we expect you to start right. That will cover some of the testing, some readme, some 
example how to organize your code, how to structure your code, including how you evolve your code. However, if you're not starting now, if you've been using service for more than a year or three years, or if you are in large enterprise, this may not be a good fit for you. Do this instead. This was, was something we worked with Tracten, a partner of AWS, Advanced on Serverless Consulting. They've done uh, something that what most enterprises do and what I've seen as well, especially when you work in multiple teams, multiple microservices, and you already have some CICD in place. You might want to do things like feature branches, feature toggles, just auto-discover branches as you create, create preview environments, and then delete them upon merge on pull requests. This is exactly it. It covers most of the best practices on CI/CD, but it could also be an overkill if you are just starting and prototyping and development. This is about deploying to multiple accounts and things like this. Right. The next one, which this talk is heavily based on, one of my friends called Jeremy Daly, if you haven't seen him, he covered about 17 patterns, if I'm not mistaken, in more in-depth. There are some patterns that I'm not covering here, so if you are interested in multiple other patterns of serverless, especially serverless microservices, dealing with connection pooling, all the sorts of things, Jeremy covers in a fantastic, well-written article that he keeps up to date, including event-driven and a bunch of other emerging patterns that I decided not to cover in this session. So please check it out. Okay, next piece is, this is if you're already doing serverless and you, you're already past the point of having 10 functions or 50 functions. If you're, in the, if you're in the process of having hundreds of functions, you know how hard it could be to figure out what is the correct memory setting for Lambda. As you apply memory for that, as you increase the memory, we will allocate proportionally CPU, networking, and I.O. If all your function does is calling a HTTP endpoint, don't use a default memory. There's a bunch of other ways to do it. More memory doesn't mean it's gonna be more expensive. In fact, almost always, in some cases, are gonna be cheaper. What this tool does is it deploys a state machine on your AWS account, and you say, what is the Lambda function you want me to test? How many times you want me to invoke this function? And what is the payload? It will basically reconfigure your Lambda function across all memory settings we have, and it will keep testing your Lambda function, and then you can say, are you trying to optimize for cost, for performance, or something in between? And then we give you a web graph that you can go and investigate what was the performance and you can find out what is the best memory setting for you. It's a more systematic approach to do it. To give a more realistic approach, why is this important? Well, take a look at the difference just by switching the memory from 128 megabytes to 512 megabytes. All we were doing this in this particular one that I highlighted is a API gateway calling Lambda that calls a DynamoDB and do some calculation on loyalty points, which I will cover the whole use case at the end of the session. This is a tool that we call Gatling, an open source load testing tool that gives us some beautiful graphs and reports on how latency is distributed and some of the areas that you can go and improve. Steady rates, burst rates, that sort of thing. We only did two things here to get that performance boost. We've tuned the Lambda function, and we've done something that you may already know. API Gateway, when you launch using CloudFormation, it deploys what we call edge-optimized. If you're, all you're trying to do is service-to-service -service communication, or all your customers are in the same region you're trying to deploy, your AWS region, don't use the default. 
use regional APIs. Regional APIs essentially remove the CDN from the top of API Gateway, which increases the networking connection, or it also uses HTTP2 to give you some of the benefits. So if you're trying to do lambda to lambda, EC2 to lambda, container to lambda through an API Gateway, there's no need for having an edge optimized. You would only use edge optimized when your customers are completely geographically dispersed, when you're actually in the CDN on top. And nothing also stops you from adding your own CDN. If you have your own CDN on top of API Gateway, use regional API. Otherwise, you have CDN on top of CDN on top of API Gateway. And this is just a switch that you have to do. The next one, which I kind of expect you to know a bit, which I will talk about more, is what we call a SAGA pattern or, or coordinated transactions within a state machine. I will, I will cover this particular service airline in more details at the end. But the idea here is to show you if you were to do some complex booking process, if you were to search for a flight, pay for that flight, and you want to reserve seats and do that sort of thing, there's a bunch of transactions that have to happen either sequentially or in parallel. And if they fail, you want to make sure it goes back to where it's supposed to be. Clean up the state and tell the customer, I couldn't book your flight, or I couldn't collect your payment. You know what? I will try again three times or for the next 72 hours. If I can't collect your payment, then I will tell you that, I'm sorry, I'm going to cancel your booking, and I'm going to tell you this is how you can talk to us. On the right-hand side, this is what we call the happy path. When everything works, when the network is reliable and everything's working just fine, everything will just go super fast right here. But when it doesn't, each of those taps, they have retries built in, exponential backoff, jitter, catching failures in try-catch mode. And when you detect certain types of failures, it will go to the left-hand side. You see those red? That's where it goes. One of the pieces I've noticed by working with customers in production for quite some time, they've almost always missed the last tap on the far left-hand, bottom left-hand side. When you use tap functions, by default, it doesn't have an integration with DLQ or dead letter Q. If you want to capture that message that failed of the whole state execution, you can add an additional step integrating directly with SQS as a queue, and you can send the entire input event to that queue so you can do something with it. So it's actually just about four lines to do this. I can give you the source code as well at the end. All right, now that you know all the basics and you know all this, we're going to start with the comfortable rest. The comfortable rest, as you can imagine, is a REST API, right? It's where most customers start with serverless or Lambda, in particular, an API gateway. And what we're going to be doing across the session now, you're going to see an architecture where almost everyone starts like this. This is kind of the POC, right? This is the beautiful state where everything looks so simple that it's amazing, right? It just feels the dream. And at the bottom, I'm using my team, well-architected five pillars to help you apply best practices and better design. No matter what the pattern you come up with or you use, the ones at the bottom is going to help you create some guidelines and some processes around it, whether you're doing the right thing or not. Technologies come and go, patterns come and go. The pillars can help you have a better north on that sense. OK, so first things first. From an operations perspective, if you're going to production, the very minimum, you want to have some tracing because you're going to have some multiple functions. You want to know what was the downstream latency, what is the distributed latency across multiple services, what was the customer, that sort of thing. And you also want to make sure you have met custom metrics and structure logging. By structure logging, I mean configuring your logging output as JSON 
and clearly defining what are the standard keys in your JSON output that's always going to be there no matter what service you actually log. By doing this, you can have a much better search platform using CloudWatch login sites, using Elasticsearch, Kibana. It doesn't matter. JSON is well, really well understood, and you can do this. The only piece of advice that's new now, creating custom metrics from within your Lambda was actually a bit challenging before last week. Some customers were trying to do that synchronously in their code using AWS SDK and just saying, put metric data. Don't do this. Unless your metric, your metric is highly critical, you want to make sure it's there. The new CloudWatch embedded metric format, by using the same structure logging, all you do, you have a big JSON blob file, log line, that you can collect up to 100 metrics, and CloudWatch will do this for you automatically. And we are talking about microseconds now. All you need to do is just to log in your outputs a single JSON blob in a format that we expect, and we are going to create those metrics for you. You can do up to 100 metrics at a time. The next one, it might seem basic. Serverless is awesome because it scales for you. It handles a bunch of things that you have to do otherwise. But at the same time, it doesn't mean your business needs 100,000 requests per second all the time, or 10,000 requests per second. You, as you understand your customer behavior, you want to make sure that you don't allow yourself from abuse, from bots, from things like this. At a very basic level, you would want to regulate the access rates. Just because API Gateway and Lambda can scale for a large number of requests, it doesn't mean your traditional database or anything else you need to. Sometimes you get requests that you're actually paying for this. By regulating the access rates and enforcing authorization, you actually don't pay for those requests that fail. So that helps a lot as well. Like I already mentioned, from an authorization perspective, that's kind of the minimum you want to do, unless you are doing a public API and you don't want to have authorization in place. In this case, we're using Cognito here, but it could be using anything else as a custom authorizer. And we're also using Secrets Manager for sensitive data. If you don't have sensitive data, you just use Parameter Store and it works better for you. If you have about 1,000 transactions on getting fetching parameters and configurations, the default behavior will not work for you. You have to go to the console or the CLI or the CDK and tell Parameter Store you want a bump in the transactions per second. So if you have about 100 functions or more, you have to do this. This is kind of mandatory. Secrets Manager, on the other hand, that will give you about 1.5 thousand transactions per second from fetching secrets. It helps you a lot on that one. From a performance perspective, I already touched on the regional endpoint. Like I already mentioned, you don't want to do this if your customers are regional or if you have microservices talking to microservices via an API. DynamoDB as well. Right now, if you use SAM or even serverless framework for the matter, they will already use the on-demand by default as a best practice. If you're starting out your prototyping, you don't know your access patterns yet. There's no point on paying for something you're not knowing yet. Use the on-demand, it's gonna be a lot cheaper for you unless you know exactly what you're having as a request and it's consistent throughput. If it's consistent throughput all the time, you wanna switch to provision capacity because that's gonna be cheaper for you as well without the scaling. Lastly, like I already mentioned, use the Lambda power tuning to make sure you know what is the correct memory setting. It's imp There's a, even one session, the Chalk Talk, which I, I can recommend to you afterwards. If you look for Lambda optimization at the reInvent Session catalog or YouTube afterwards, 
There's a talk by one of my friends who actually built the Lambda Power Tuning called Alex Casalboni. He showcases every possible detail when people thought having lower memory was actually cheaper, when in fact it was sometimes five times more expensive. All right, the next one is my new favorite. It's called the Cherry Pick. When you're building a new web application or a mobile app and you're looking for something more real-time capabilities, this is the GraphQL piece. We're going to start very basic, and we're going to start adding other features so you can see how it grows. Like I already mentioned, when you start with GraphQL and in tutorials and Hello Worlds, this is like the dream, right? You have an API on top, and you, all you have to do is like some create, update, read, and delete, and sorting data and filtering data for flights. Just to do all of this, it's about five lines. You don't need to do anything else. No code involved. This changed the way I see applications right now and the way I even talk to customers. So AppSync managing the GraphQL API for us. Let's say you actually want to use something more complex logic. If you're just inserting some data, listing some data, or fetching some sort of data, Apache VTL or Apache Velocity template will work for you. GraphQL makes it easier to do this. However, as you start troubleshooting, as you start doing something more complex, adding some tracing, some custom logic, don't do this. Lambda function is specifically for this. In this case, I'm trying to get loyalty for a customer X, and my Lambda function has to calculate all the points they have and also tell them what is the next tier for you, how many points you are behind the next tier percentage and things like this. You're not going to do this in Apache VTL. One of the even my mistakes that I learned by myself, when you start using GraphQL, there's a feature in AppSync called Pipeline Resolvers. Imagine you're doing REST API when you make one single call, and that call will probably do some chaining actions. So call service number one and call service number two. If both succeeds, it returns. In theory, it's awesome, right? It's super, super helpful. It's super simple. In this case, we're trying to do some booking process, trying to use multiple lambdas for doing this. Pipeline Resolver doesn't give you that capability of if fails, what do I do? How do I retry? How, much, how many times do I retry? When do I stop? What exactly failed? Tell me these things. AppSync can, can work directly with any AWS service as well. And in this case, when someone does an init booking in a mutation, that will spin up that saga pattern that you saw. This is one of my favorites because it looks simple in the architecture, but it's one of the most powerful things today. Let's say you have a booking. And inside the booking, you have the booking reference, the outbound flight, the status of the booking, and whatever you want. And let's say you decided to add additional fields that only certain people in a travel agency, for instance, could have access, but not the customer. When you enable Cognito in AppSync, or any JWT for the matter, you can not only say, in order to make that API call, they have to be authorized. AppSync or GraphQL takes it to the next level without you coding anything. And you can say, for that particular field of my flight or my booking, not only they have to be authorized to get this data, but also if they, have, if they are part of the group agency or admin. And you can mix and match on a per field level as well. If they're not, the data returns just as no, and your front end will just work with that. One of the biggest, what I guess the biggest benefits of GraphQL beyond the subscriptions in real time is the fact that you can swap databases and yet keep a consistent model and contract with your front end. If, for instance, I have my booking reference, inside my booking, everything comes from DynamoDB. 
But if I decide now that I need Elasticsearch for doing full text search on booking reference, I just swap that field to go to Elasticsearch. And when I fetch my booking, everything comes from DynamoDB except booking reference, and both run in parallel. It's a much more powerful mechanism. And it allows you to keep swapping those things, and the client doesn't have to know. The contract still remains the same, and you still get the benefit of starting to use purpose-built databases. This is the same for single table design that we discussed a lot. Single table design is awesome for performance in many different ways. But if you don't have that performance need, and you're just starting out, you don't know all your access patterns, AppSync can handle all of these pieces for you in a GraphQL and a DynamoDB. And once you feel ready, you can change those implementations. Otherwise, there's no need for this. It allows you to have a much more progressive experience and allows you to evolve your architecture, make your, change your decisions as you understand better your customer behavior without having the drawback. And that came out last week. One of the hardest engineering pieces we've done for AppSync beyond the Amplify data store for offline data. REST for caching is quite simple. You know what is the URL and you know what is the payload that comes back, right? And it's kind of a, I wouldn't say easy, but it's relatively okay to do caching. It's not that hard. GraphQL is hard because it gives the front end or the client the flexibility to say, I want the booking, but I don't want all the data from booking. Only send me this field of the booking because I, can want, I want to show a pagination to say how many bookings you have. And then I can make another call and I can ask something else. And because you have this flexibility, it makes it hard to cache. Especially when you look at the API call that it's made, it's only just slash GraphQL. You don't see anything else. The control is in the payload. With the new caching server side, we're now giving you two types of caching. When you make queries, for instance, get loyalty or get flights or list flights, we can cache a pair authorization session as the customer authenticates. If they make more than one request using the same parameters, we will know it and we will cache it for you. Or better yet, you don't want to cache everything. You don't want to cache basket, for instance. You want to cache some sensitive data. What you can do as well, on, on the first left-hand side, you see resolvers, queries, mutations. In GraphQL terms, resolver is actually where the compute happens. It's where you want to go and fetch some data. You can now enable cache on a resolver level. So you can say, for doing a full text search, I want that field to actually be cacheable. Everything else, I don't want it to be cached. It's much more powerful concept than on the REST side of things, if you fancy. A practical example of this, I'm gonna be doing this now from now on. I'm gonna be showing the pattern, and if there's a customer that I know what I worked with, I'm gonna be showing how they implemented something similar. This is the serverless airline that you saw the screenshot. We've done this on Twitch with about three months, 14 hours of episodes that we have recorded. I'll give you the link so you can go and watch. We've done everything from scratch, from authorization, authentication, from defining our first data model to define our schema, to make some mistakes live and realize that the pattern was wrong and then we fixed it. We made multiple PRs. That memory tuning that I'm talking about, the API gateway, regional API, that low testing all comes from here. I've now documenting all the tech debts that I actually even incurred myself and the trade-offs I had to make or decisions I had to make as we were building this. In a nutshell, the client is a mobile app or a web app. It was a progressive web app. And as they search for a particular flight that goes straight to AppSync, there's no lambda involved for just fetching a flight. Just go straight to catalog, catalog, fetch the data from database in DynamoDB. As you are making about to make a booking, we can talk directly to payments at the bottom, going to Stripe, 
through an API gateway, or we can also go straight to the booking afterwards if we're able to do a pre-authorization. And then step functions calls multiple functions, collect payment, confirm booking, yada, yada. And then it calls SNS to publish a message to loyalty and say, booking has been confirmed. I want you to calculate those points and ingest into the database. Later, we do something that I thought it wasn't, it, I couldn't see it before, but now it is possible to do it easily. You can do AppSync as an API hub or a graph, a big graph, to any AWS service. And more importantly, if you notice that loyalty has an API gateway and payment has its own API gateway, we can connect this AppSync to API gateway directly just by using IAM authorization. No, and the client doesn't need to know about this. The client continues to use their Cognito, their JWT, whatever authorizer they have to use. And we do that securely. Now, the call me maybe. Call me maybe is nothing but that webhook, right? What is that webhook? You are dealing with Slack, you are dealing with some GitHub, some background job that's actually gonna take a while, and once it's finished, you wanna be notified. In theory, again, super simple. To make things different, I decided to not use a DynamoDB and give some love to relational databases because they're awesome as well. As you start for doing this, you probably already noticed before their announcements, which I couldn't update the slides for now, but I will walk you through. You had an issue with Lambda scaling too fast and relational databases having issues with memory, connections, and things like this. When people do this, the first reaction they normally, normally take is limiting the Lambda function for a number of concurrency. That is great and at the same time is really bad. Why is that? It's great when you have low volume requests. It works really well. You don't need more than five and that's okay. However, if you need more than five, you're gonna be throttled on this. Your lambda will not go beyond the five. At the same time, it reserves that concurrency, but it also limits that concurrency as well. So if you don't wanna do this, there's a much better way to do this. Something that customers have been using for the past couple years and is being battle tested and it works really well. This works when it's asynchronous. What you can do, it's using Kinesis. Kinesis is an event source. By default, we will limit the concurrence of our function without having to limit the, the function concurrence itself. As you receive more, as you ingest more data, Kinesis by default has a single shard and it will aggregate, batch as much as possible, and then do a single invocation on a per second basis. If you decide that you're receiving too much data and now you want to flush out that stream of that queue more rapidly, you can then increase your shards or you can do the new feature called parallelization where you can then say, even if I have a single shard, I have too much data now. I want to spin up more concurrency. And that doesn't limit your lambda function and you still get all the benefits you're looking for, including the new features of custom withdrawals, sending Kinesis failed batches to, an um, to a DLQ and things like this. Even though I said DLQ at the bottom, don't do DLQs anymore if you're looking for additional data. I'll explain in a minute. Lambda, when something fails in event source, you basically say, try three times, and then send the message to a DLQ. We announced something called Lambda destinations. I've been trying this, and I definitely don't recommend doing DLQs anymore. Why? When you use Lambda destinations, it's a piece of infrastructure outside your Lambda function construct that you say, if my Lambda function fails, send every possible contextual data, why it failed, how many retries it tried, what was the event source, what was the function, to a DLQ. Before this, if a message failed to be processed, you would receive the payload of that failure, but you wouldn't know why, where it came from, or which function. 
Authorization becomes a, a classic now. You kind of know all the security you have at the very minimal authorization in place. But there's something else you could also do. If you're doing Node.js, you can look up, which I will show you after at the demo, but if I'm, for some reason I forget, there's a library called Dazon, which is the company, D-A-Z-N, Power Tools. Power Tools give you a library to work with Kinesis, with any other data, that you can easily obfuscate sensitive data. Imagine you receive a big JSON blob that before it goes to the database or before it goes to any other processing, you want to make sure that that part of the JSON key or part of the data has obfuscation. You just import this library and that will handle for you. You can also do it by yourself as well. But the idea here is that you do this on the stream itself by having another Lambda function just to obfuscate the data. And then when it goes to the Lambda before it goes to Dynamo or RDS in this case, it's already obfuscated. Because we're dealing with webhook, sometimes you don't need to do some processing immediately. In fact, for a better cost perspective and performance, you want to batch as much as you can, aggregate as much as you can, and do a single invocation so you get a better cost per invocation ratio. How you can do this? In Kinesis, there's a feature called batch window that you can say for how long you want to wait until you invoke. And you can wait up to five minutes. That gives you very low concurrency, huge cost and a huge value on a per invocation basis. Because we're dealing with webhooks, if it's something they're doing new right now, why not just using API Gateway straight to, again, SQS, Lambda, and DynamoDB? It, you can still buffer if those requests fail, if Lambda has some concurrency issues or your code fails, whatever that is. You still have the capability of holding that data for 14 days, if you wish, and you still have Dynamo that you don't have to deal with connections and things like this. We announced, uh, I think yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, if you are doing relational databases with MySQL, we announced RDS proxy. It basically is a proxy SQL, per se, where basically proxy all those SQL connections or those database connections to the database, and you no longer have to think about those Kinesis streams or those pieces if you wanted to. Think of it as a PG bouncer if you use Postgres or proxy SQL for any other databases. The next one, it might be familiar, but there's a big difference, which I will show you in a minute. The big fanout is the fanout, classic one, right? You have REST API, Lambda, Central and SNS, and then you fanout to one consumer or multiple consumers. At first, it looks like this, but it can be, it can be too much of having all this. It can be a lot simpler, a lot less to manage. One of the interesting, I wouldn't say issue, I'd say is that it's a very interesting challenge to see. As you start using Lambda and you get comfortable, you see Lambda everywhere. Sometimes the architecture barely fits a diagram. There's so many Lambda functions that you don't, need, you don't understand why you have so many functions sometimes. All of this, if all you're trying to do is REST API, Lambda to SNS, connect directly. API Gateway or AppSync, all those managed APIs can, if you're not doing any custom processing within the payload itself, and all you want to do is send a message to an SNS topic or a stream or a DynamoDB or S3, you name it, API Gateway connects that directly. That's fine. Next one, you can also use SQS uh, from the consumer's pieces to make it to kind of a batch as much as you can. So they have SNS to SQS as opposed to SNS to Lambda. If you haven't seen this before, SNS has a one-to-one -one ratio. You send one payload, it's one invocation. SNS to SQS will keep batching those, aggregating those, and send 10 messages at once. 
So again, better cost, better performance ratio. What is also new, if you're only doing SNS for whatever purposes, if SNS fails to deliver that message, you will keep on with trying multiple times. But if you want it to stop, or if you want to receive a failure, pay, a failed payload, you can now do DLQ directly in SNS as well. That's a new feature that came out last week. And again, authorization is the same, with one exception. If you're doing some public APIs, or you don't trust whoever's sending the message, or if the message has been tempered or not, if you haven't noticed, inside the payload of SNS, it contains a key that you can use to verify if it was indeed SNS who publishes a message to you. And that's something you can use as well. As you're going to a more multiple consumers to make it more efficient, SNS by default, if you don't use this feature, as you increase the number of consumers, every message you send to SNS, you will broadcast to multiple consumers the same message. Sometimes all you want is actually to only process messages if the booking status is created, or confirmed, or confirmed, or whatever order is now being processed. Use a feature called message filtering to make sure you pay less, and you also invoke less, and it's more efficient as well. If you can, from a cost perspective, you can also compress and aggregate messages as much as possible on the client-hand side before you send those messages back. Alternatively, if you have high throughput, large payloads, don't use SNS. Use Kinesis instead. Kinesis will give you about a one megabyte payload in and two megabytes to be read on the back of it. If you have consistent throughput from a cost perspective, Kinesis will be more efficient for you. But if you don't have large payloads, like always 256 kilobytes all the time and a high throughput, SNS will just do fine. It works really well. Battle tested, super simple to do. But how does that look like in real life? When would you use something like this? This is a customer that I worked with. We were doing migration of the whole e-commerce platform to serverless. And this is what we came up with as we were trying to do step-by-step -step first before we went full serverless in multiple other components. So what we did first was they needed to get insights of, of the furnitures and some of the business transactions they actually sell online. So Daniel is a leading uh, furniture retailer in the UK on that one. So all of those business transactions were happening at SAP at the end. Before we, before we tried to change every possible architecture, we decided to do one piece at a time. So every business transaction goes from SAP, sends a message to an API gateway, REST API, that goes straight to SNS, no lambda function involved, as you already know, and then we start funding out to multiple consumers. We started with one and then started increasing and more consumers wanted the same data and then you go one. And that's a couple, about 300 queues or 400 queues if I'm not mistaken today, just to give an idea. Everything else is kind of the same. It also works the same with Fargate and other containers idea, implementations as well. Right, this is new for me. I've seen it in many different, many different forms, especially in Data Lake, but they say I'm a streamer, it's Streaming data reimagined. I've seen this pattern in one customer and I fall in love with the way, the simplicity they did, and I decided to put this in here because I think it's a much better way to do it. What you want to do is you have clients, web clients, click stream, whatever the data it is. All you want to do is send those data very fast to an API that you know is going to be stored somewhere. Then you're going to do that data. This is why you're going to be using stream pattern. At first, you start with something like this. Works. 
fine. As you start growing, growing your use case, that may not be the best fit. Operations-wise, at the very least, if you're trying to do event sourcing, instead of having a Lambda function to put a backup of that, the feature is already there for you. You can say, whatever record goes to my stream, I want a backup of it in a separate bucket. So you can do this for so many reasons that you probably know more than me on that sense now on why. The next one, this is perfect when you have a high amount of streaming records coming, and they might be having different services or different functionalities of your application. The customer in particular, he was, as they were trying to grow the number of services and features offered to their clients, they started adding different firehose for different business domain data that ended up going to different buckets afterwards. As you already know, I already talked about authorization and obfuscation of the data, so that's the same. It doesn't change. As you already probably noticed, some of those patterns, some of those best practices repeat, no matter what pattern you use. So keep that in mind. From a performance perspective, if you're going to use something like Athena or some sort of a way to crawl the data and squeeze the data, you can convert that JSON blob that you're sending to API Gateway to either ORC or Parquet in the stream itself, no Lambda function is necessary. Unless you want something custom logic that, yes, then you need a Lambda function. What happens here is all these business events go to separate firehose, separate S3 buckets, and they have a crawler to automatically detect the schema of that data, that clickstream data, and then they can use uh, Tina to actually do the queries as well. You already are an expert on this. You could actually use SNS, and that Lambda function now becomes much, much smaller. And all the Lambda function does now is one thing that you, can, you don't even need to maintain that anymore. All the Lambda function now does is routing the message based on the payload tag, the message filtering, to a particular Kinesis Firehose. It's something that now you can deploy to many different accounts, and you don't have to manage those complexity inside the code anymore. Because you have API Gateway and SNS, the, a payload will be tagged because you know exactly which Firehose it should go, and Lambda just does a job as actually putting that data in. If you are doing global regions, instead of going to API Gateway at high throughput, API Gateway in that particular case can be a little bit expensive compared to doing this approach, where you can use CloudFront, Lambda at Edge, and going straight to those Kinesis Firehose. We've actually blogged about this as well. So if you look for global data streaming ingestion on AWS, you'll find the blog on that one. But how does that look like in real life, right? That's why you're here for. This is the customer. Uh, Ed, the CTO of LifeWorks, was kind enough to share his architecture just for this bit. They are running in multiple regions at the same time at the same idea, and it's super effective on how they do it. LifeWorks provides life, uh, employee well-being services for large enterprises, where all of this SNS and firehose would actually be business events for, think of it as a people portal type of scenario, where you have different employee services that you, uh, you offer them inside your company, and based on how they use your platform, your services, they generate different business events that you can go and crawl and do something, including the obfuscation of data, which is not here, but you get the point. All right, so this is the strangler. We're not going to strangle anyone here, just to make clear. That's why I put in quotes. So the strangler pattern is, what if you want to move to serverless? You want to migrate to serverless. You've never done AWS before, or you've never done serverless before. 
Instead of going a big bang approach, which could be super interesting at first, a stronger pattern is a more conservative approach that also takes into account not only the technology change, but also the employee cognitive load. Going from on-premises or going from some place where you don't know CICD, you haven't implemented many of microservices ideas or distributed systems can be a toll on everyone's inner team. So Strangler kind of helps you to do this in a phased approach. Say you have a data center, you have a load balancer, multiple servers, and obviously a single database. I did on purpose because of the monolith joke. Then, as you could have an API on top of it to start adding slowly new functionalities without having to change your client. Your contract now is established, and you hide the implementation details, and you slowly keep adding pieces. That's exactly what we did at Dunelm, and then we slowly keep adding features at the back of it, the back of systems. So first you have a VPC, where API Gateway sends the traffic to a network load balancer, sends to a private IP of that server, and then to a database. We use Direct Connect to make it more performance. But the mistake here is going from network load balancer to the private IP address of the server. The server could go away, the private IP could change, that could fail. Don't do this. But first, let's fix something else. We'll go back to this. Because you're now going to have two different systems, possibly you want to make sure that those logs and metrics are centralized. You could use CloudWatch, you can use your own system. The whole point is to centralize those, otherwise you're going to be using multiple systems to see what's going on with our customers. And you're using X-Ray, again, for tracing. Instead of using the private IP, I can't see of any load balancers today, F5 and Citrix and many other load balancers already provide you today a cluster IP or virtual IP. Use that instead, because that IP will be always there, and if your service change, you're always going to be fine. Again, authorization here. But what changes in this pattern is most customers already have Active Directory or some sort of identity provider, where a custom authorization here would be a Lambda function talking to your on-premises identity provider in order to make sure that that client should be able to connect you. I didn't talk in here, but most of the time you also want to have the API gateway in private as a private API gateway. It depends on what you're trying to do. Because you now have this API gateway, this contract on top, you're slowly shifting what you have the same as apples to apples, or sometimes you refactor some of it or you replatform some of it. Some databases now could be on RDS if it's the same database engine. Sometimes you can just use this container now using Amazon ECS, Fargate, you name it. But sometimes we know, we know what happens. Not every code can be refactored. Not every code can be lifted and shifted. So sometimes it could be just a virtual machine. Or sometimes they stay on premises for quite some time. You retire them afterwards. Or you do the, stream, the screaming test. Shut down the server. If anyone screams, now you know who owns that piece. I know. I've done that. It's quite cool, actually. Then for new functionalities, then you can start using serverless. You can start using Lambda and DynamoDB to get the new functionalities and also cost reasons as well. So how does that look in real life? Last year, I had the pleasure to work with another customer in the UK called HSPC. You probably have heard of them. HSPC did it in different parts. So I'm going to show you the networking foundation first that is absolutely necessary for customers who are in large enterprise and have lots of traffic and regulations and security constraints. I've seen that in multiple places, not only in fintech, in retail, in the news media, and all that pieces. So how does that work? You normally have a VPC, right, that you may have some Lambda functions there. 
Those Lambda functions have to talk to something on-premises. Uh, you already know there's going to be an API that calls a Lambda that does something on-premises. And sometimes it could be both ways as well. As you have this Lambda function, one of the, one of the regulations, especially the HSBC when we were discussing this, was all the internet traffic, including the outbound traffic to on-premises, had to go to a proxy so they could enforce the security controls they already had in place. What we did was having a separate VPC, super small, just for those proxies. And what we did for those Lambda functions, because clearly that Lambda function will grow, that will start very small and that's gonna go for hundreds if not thousands of functions afterwards. What we do, we use VPC endpoint to get all those traffic to on-premises to that VPC endpoint that goes to network load balancer, then goes to data connect, and it goes to HSBC. The opposite also works. You have another VPC endpoint that goes to the internet, goes to the proxy, that goes to IGW or internet gateway. Same idea. One of the interesting pieces which they cover on their video is now they're able to get that Lambda VPC and start duplicating across the business without having to change the network anymore. And that's something they still do today, and I will give you uh, the, the session ID, or if you just look for HSBC serverless reInvent, you find that the session was last year. They not only covered this, but they covered what I'm gonna cover next, which was even more interesting if you're doing distributed systems, or if you wanna do the same, mainframe to serverless. How does that look? Similar to the idea of Strangler Pattern, as they got the networking foundation, they wanted to have a new service, in this case it was a new feature, completely new, that their mobile customers would be able to receive push notifications, and they will also be able to slide those push notifications to only then get the information they wanted, as opposed to send a push notification with the entire data in there for security reasons. Like you don't want to see your, your cash or withdrawal in the push notification sometimes. So what we did was, first, we need to find a way for the customers to get on their mobile app, web app, and set preferences of what exactly they want to receive as a notification. Super simple, you already are an expert in here. You see, this is kind of classic REST API. It just works. Then next, we had the mainframe operations happening all over the place, and, but we, wanted, we needed to convert what was the mainframe into something that could be consumed on AWS. So first we started with Kafka, and then we use something amazing that I love now. It's called Apache NiFi. Apache NiFi is nothing more but a data workflow. You get data in a particular format in another one. And Apache NiFi was also responsible through a connector to get that data from Avro to JSON ASCII and then sending that to a Kinesis stream. Quite similar to the streaming pattern in some ways, with a difference that we couldn't use Lambda in here. They already had the process of doing some heavy computation of the, the data from mainframe, so Spark was something that you were already comfortable with. So keep that in mind as well. If your, your players already know what they're doing and they already have something that works really well, start with that and then slowly you see if that gives you more benefits of using something new. The next one was you've got all the data from the mainframe, you've gotten into JSON, but the challenge now you have so much data that you don't know what is the business event that would match the customer preferences they actually wanted. Are they looking for credits? Are they looking for uh, withdrawal? What exactly is happening there? This data service ended up becoming a central piece of HSPC from a serverless perspective now because it provides the data service for any other microservice, any other team inside to go and fetch the data from this mainframe if they wanted to. So what the data service does, apart from storing the data into Dynamo, 
in their video, they explain how they use Aurora to deal with duplicity and handling with high dependency type of, type of situation. So data service transforms all this JSON into business events, store into that Dynamo, and then it makes sure that you can work with as a REST API for other services to work with. The next one, EventBridge wasn't available back then. So what they did was they created their own event engine by making sure that once the data comes in the business event, now they know what it is, they need to know if the customer actually is interested on this before they send a push notification to them. So that was the filtering piece. I see all these events, is that what the customer wants? Similar to the SNS message filtering which we discussed. Once they know exactly what the customer wants, the event is what the customer wants, they push to a message service, you see the same thing, API Gateway, Lambda, etc. API Gateway is to make sure that you always have a contract that other services can talk to you, but the data event-driven is actually always using Kinesis all over the place as an entry point. Once they know what it is, you, you get that data and you say, I want to send this as a push notification. The notification service will then send that, but will, the, the message service is the only one who knows exactly what the content of the message is. So it would just say, send to this particular customer mobile application ID, and they can come back to me with that message I did I'm telling you, and then they can see what the content is for security reasons. So that's exactly what happens. That's why you see the API gateways all over the place, as an entry point, as a contract, either between services or reusable components across the business, or for the mobile app to also interactive. But in this case, we're only setting preferences, retrieving preferences, and also making sure we get that message out when we slide that button on our mobile phone. So that's currently working for a couple million, if not 20, over, over 20 million customers right now. Okay, so now that you're ready, before I actually close, I just wanna show you some quick links that you all should know. This is the serverless airline that I mentioned to you. I'm documenting the patterns right now that we've introduced and documenting some of the trade-offs I already mentioned, but you can already deploy another account. We're now doing ETL in another pool request. We're now also doing load testing in another pool request. So I'm just gonna switch my laptop, show you what this project is, how you read, and how you get those patterns. And if you are doing Python, the best language in the world, I have a treat for you as well. All right, so let me switch this real quick. So this is, the, this, is the pub, this is the repo that I mentioned to you already. So you can go to the pull request and you can see a bunch of them. In fact, you can, if you haven't watched the Twitch session, if you go to closed, you're gonna see multiple pull requests per episode and a bunch of things, including optimizations. All of that regional edge to regional lambda memory optimizations is all on this pull request. You can see there's a bunch of pull requests in there, including application composition and a bunch of things we tell customers should do, but we've actually done it in practice. So how do you read this? If I were to open GitHub in, my, in, the, in here, this is the folder that I use Amplify to manage all the GraphQL authorization and things like this. Don't touch it. Don't touch that folder. Like This can break, like, seriously. So leave that for CI. Inside the source, you have not only the front end, we're using Vue.js, again, best framework in the world for me. I know, React lovers, right? Cool. And then, I have end-to-end -end tasks using Cypress. We basically spin up a Docker container, open up a browser, search for a flight, book a flight, payment, and make sure that I got the booking and I got the points for now. 
And then inside the booking, inside the backend, I have the booking service, catalog service, everything you've sent. If you are using CloudWatch logs today, have a look at this. This has all the common practices I've been telling customers for quite some time. Within one click, you apply log expiration, custom metrics asynchronously, and a bunch of other pieces you want to do. Just a single template. Inside each of those backends, if you already have the curiosity how a project would normally be structured, whether it's Python, Node.js, whatever that is, I'm using Python here, again, best language, but it could be Java, it could be other things, or Go, for instance, or Rust, if you will. And the same template is over here, and also cancel booking every microservice or every function itself. We are also doing differently, especially if you already have more than a couple CloudFormation stacks. A natural question for you would be, what is the pattern of sharing resources between stacks. We cover all of this inside those templates as well. So go and check that out. The next one, if you do Java, this is a much better example for you. So look up for real-world serverless application. What we've done here is if you've ever seen the serverless application repository service on AWS, we open-sourced part of the functionality to showcase how we develop internally. Not only is it available on the builder's library some of the patterns you can see, but inside there, you'll be able to see some of those patterns yourself implemented. That's using Java and using uh, some annotations for REST API as well. The best part is you want to go to the wiki, all of those patterns and why CloudFormation, why CloudFormation is structured the way it is in this project, DynamoDB, why REST. In fact, why are they even using single Lambda function as opposed to multiple Lambda functions? There's always, a, there's always why, there's a reason why. So it's always there, including alerts and pagination and some strategies you can use. But this is for you now. What if you're doing Python? If you're doing Python, if you're, if you're the lucky one, I need your feedback on this. I silently published this before the reinvent to capture feedback so I can go on holidays, come back, get your feedback, and start working on this. Remember the operations pillar at the bottom of every architecture? I'm trying to automate all of this with a few lines. So what this does, I will show you, that does structure logging for you, tracing and custom metrics in a way that's so simple to use. The idea here is to make it easier to have conventions that we tell you on a chat, on a, on a session basis. But we start with Python first, but once we lock it down, because it's beta right now, we can start working on other languages as well. So how this is approached? So let's say you want to do this structure, this, uh, this tracing that I've been telling you to do. This is how. You import the tracer and say tracer, tracer. And that we already trace code starts. If you run some CLI with a function, you already know that you're trying to run locally and will disable tracing, no performance impact on that one. And if you do this at tracer capture mode or at tracer capture handler, that will capture the metadata of or errors or traces and add into the trace itself. And if you're doing something really in production, that is like absolutely must. If you don't do annotations on your tracing or labels, you're absolutely missing visibility on this one. What this does, imagine you have 100 functions or more, and you want to know if the payment has been successful. What were the transactions that the payment failed, where the latency was over five seconds, which microservices, and whether the downstream was talking to DynamoDB or not. That's what labels and annotations give you. Annotations is nothing else but a key value that you can sort and group all your traces across AWS, and you can start doing logic like AND, OR, WITH, and things like this. And better yet, you can also create um, a much more composite alarm, for instance, if you want. You can say, 
show me all the traces where the customer has a premium tier and he went to loyalty and he has a latency downstream of over a second, because I want to know. They shouldn't have that experience. And if that ever happens, create a CloudWatch metric for me. All of this is done through annotations. So don't miss on that feature. You don't pay for doing that feature. It's free indexing for you. Next, what if you want to do structure logging? Well, that's it. You do logger setup, and we will already hook into the Lambda logging, and we will convert all the logging possible in Python to JSON format. And that at logger inject Lambda context will pick up the classic keys that we always tell customers to, to log in their logs. So if I were to log something like this, collecting payments, or send the entire object for whatever reason, this is how CloudWatch will look like. This is the structure logging I've been seeing on slides in practice. You will see the code start, whether the transaction was a code start or not. And you also see things like request ID, correlation ID, memory arm, name of the function, what service, what line, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the only one that I'm sure is going to change because, like you, I didn't even know that CloudWatch was going to announce that piece. So I implemented that before. I'm now going to change it. This is how you create a custom metric today with this library. You do log metric. You say the name of the metric, the unit, the value, namespace, or dimensions, customer ID, etc. And we'll do all of this behind the scenes asynchronously with no performance impact. So that's how we're doing it right now. This is the start, but there's also the Lambda Design Power Tools. If you are interested on this one for Node.js, this is where we got the idea from, which is much more comprehensive for now. It provides a different way, different things, but I will show you in this picture only. So what this does is not only gives you utilities to do obfuscation of the data, it's simple logs in production, which is an amazing way of doing things, especially for concern about cost. It also works with retry, prevent infinite loops, prevents timeouts if something happens, you want to get the data. And it also adds correlation ID with all of those event sources, and it gives you a fine-tuned AWS SDKs as well. So this is, again, in Node.js right now. But the idea is actually to lock it down the other API and start giving you something similar across other languages as well. We know those conventions. We can make it easier, and we will make it easier. So if you haven't, so this is called Dazen Power Tools. So amazing company, fantastic engineering. Uh, and yeah, it's all open source. It's what they use in production now with a couple thousand functions. All right. Okay, so I'm going to switch back, and then let's close this. If I had two hours, I would probably have given you the same patterns, and I would probably have talked to you about why more patterns are not going to help you. Don't obsess over patterns. Don't obsess that this is the only true way, true way of doing things, because it's not. Patterns is great because you can learn from other people doing production or doing other ways. It works for them, but it doesn't mean it's the best way for you to learn from the patterns, see what makes sense, experiment, and test. So what I'm trying to propose here is that use these five pillars of well-architected as a way to guide you whether whatever you're doing makes sense to you. When we announce a new feature, for instance, a new service, use the operations pillar to understand do I, or whatever open source or whatever service I use, do I get enough visibility if something fails? If something fails, how exactly do I know when it fails? Do I have metrics for this? Do I have enough information for this? How does anyone handle this? How do I do resiliency? Same thing with liability as well. But for servers, what's important here 
is serverless most likely is going to be using with other containers or other technologies side by side as you are progressing it. And that's super important to know that even though serverless can scale, everything else may not scale in the same pattern. So you need to regulate the access rate to make sure you protect those resources. Otherwise, you're just going to queue everything. Don't do this. Don't be like me. The security reasons, different from what you already saw, most of it is actually authorization here or there. For an infrastructure, most of it is authorization. But serverless doesn't change anything in how you do security inside your application. In fact, what changes is that now you have a much more focus on the security side of things. Application security, that's what matters. OWASP hasn't changed. Doing security code review is still so important as it was before. The difference is that serverless handles all the infrastructure pieces for you, and now you have more time to do these things. Performance, I already mentioned. You have, high, you have high scale, but you also have low scale. So see what you need and change, use different features as well. And cost, like I already mentioned many, many times, we like to talk about TCO and many other values that we provide and, and the scaling the infrastructure. But what I've seen over the past four and a half years with serverless in production or as a six years of AWS employee or of doing cloud for about 10 years is there's an operational toll and also cognitive load on people when you try to use new technologies. Serverless is fantastic, but what it really works in enterprise, it's really, really effective, is start small. Start with about four people or five people even. Same with HSBC, same with Dunham, same with many other customers I worked with, not only in the UK, but across the media, across Asia as well. Same idea, start small, make sure that works, make sure that everyone understands what it is, create your own design patterns, your own blueprints, your reusable components, and then you get to the rest of the company. Like I mentioned to close up as well, at the last slide, we always provide you related breakouts. Even though they already happened, you can find them on YouTube. But I will tell you my favorites, because I, I think I'm allowed. Right? At the bottom, if you are doing serverless at scale, the patterns may be different. There are gotchas, there are operational levers, you have to know how to use it. That last session covers this. It covers concurrency at scale, it covers kinesis in a much more in-depth detail and many other pieces. If you are doing Java, again, I like to make jokes about Java and Python, Python being the best language, et cetera, but the reality is that Java is super, super fast, except if you use Java Spring, which is something else. But if you do Java Spring, your code start could be high, but after that, it's really fast. But there's a much better way to do Java Spring if you have to as you're starting. That session 403R covers a Java Spring application that was taking a couple seconds, about 10 or 11 seconds, to do a code start. And Stefano improved by 80% of that code start and the whole application by doing a few tricks. So it's a very deep dive session, 400 level, that if you're doing Java, it's a must, it's a must have. If you're, all, if you're still learning, on some of those patterns, or better yet, if you're starting right now, or if you want to do a refresh, at the bottom right-hand side, we have a, a specific course now and a specific path that you can learn some of those patterns and some of those pillars that we just discussed, not only for the certification, but also for anything else. So go check it out. There's always something to learn, always something. Okay. So apart from saying please send the survey, which I will appreciate. If you want to reach out, if you want to talk to me directly, my DMs, my direct messages are open on Twitter. Ping me at any time. If I don't know, which I don't know everything, I will probably find someone who knows and can help you with that. So feel free to take, follow me on Twitter or ping me directly at any time. If you're doing Python and you want to provide me feedback on that, 
send to the repo or send me directly. Thank you so much for having me.